0: Church, I have a, an encouragement I hope for you today and a warning. Encouragement is I read an article this week telling me why I should preach five minutes less than I planned to this Sunday. So that's your encouragement. I was instructed to preach five minutes less than what I planned to today. The warning is... For whatever reason, I woke up at 2 o'clock this morning, so if you fall asleep, you might find me beside you. So <laughs> I've only been three hours of sleep, so that's your warning. So <laughs> uh, so with that said, as you know, we are going through the book of Revelation now. We're going to be looking at uh, the first church, the church of Ephesus, the letter to them. And so if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So our plan is to walk through these verses together, uh, explaining them along the way with some points of application towards the end. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, This against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father God, may you bless the reading of your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. Strengthen us, Father, to do your will. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so diving in here, uh, in the first verse here, what we see in chapter 2 verse 1 is that Jesus is intimately involved with his church. Jesus is intimately involved with his church. He says, uh, Jesus you know, opens up, you know, he's you know, instructing John and John's writing this down, to the angel of the church in Ephesus right? So there's much debate about what this term "angel" means, and as we walk through these seven churches, you're going to see they open and end similarly. So here we have this opening to the church or to the angel of the church in Ephesus. It'll be to the angel of the church in Pergamon, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel in the Church of Philadelphia. it's going to follow that same pattern. And so among scholars, there's not a lot of um, there's you know, debate as to what the angel of the church is. Is it the pastor? Is it a bishop? Is it, um, you know, that there's just not 100% you know, certainty as to what it could be? Um, or it could be an actual angel. You know, it could be the pastor. It could be an angel. What this term really means, though, is messenger. And, um, but, you know, between the various, you know, understandings of what this word may mean, uh, the one that seems to have the greatest support is the understanding that the angel Represents a spiritual personification of the church. And so he's using angel as a way to speak to the personality of the church. So it's a spiritual personification of the church. Uh, one author said this that the angel and the church are the same under different aspects. The one is its spiritual character personified, and the other is the congregation of believers who collectively possess this character. So regardless of whatever definition you want to go with if it's you know of the uh pastor if it's actual uh, celestial being regardless of the definition what you want to do or what is clear here is that uh god jesus is speaking to the church he is speaking to the church and uh the word spoken to each church is directed to and is profitable for all churches at all times and we know that based on the ending of this section in chapter verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit has to say to the churches. And so, you know, I said each church, the letter to each church begins and ends in the same way. So all of them begin with that to the angel of Smyrna, to the angel of uh, Pergamum, to the angel of Sardis, to the angel of Laodicea, and all of them end the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So regardless of how you want to understand the term angel, what is clear is that the spirit is speaking to all the churches. If you are a member of the church in uh, Pergamum, the letter to Ephesus is applicable to you. If you are a member of the church in Smyrna, the letter to Laodicea is applicable to you. Us being members of the church at Redbud, this letter is applicable to us. The white level, these letters are applicable to them. All churches, these are applicable to. What we have is the Spirit speaking through the Son to the churches. And so, you know, instead of getting caught up on what definitions may mean, what's important for us is to understand that the Spirit is speaking through the Son to us. Jesus has something to say to his churches. And so when I said that, you know, the main idea of this verse is that Jesus is intimately involved in the church, We get that from what he says. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampposts. So what we have here is Jesus holding on to the church. You know, chapter one gives the explanation of what uh, the seven stars is and what the lampstands are. The seven stars is... uh, uh, the, the seven stars is the messengers. The seven lampstands are the churches. Um, and what we see him doing is holding them in his hand. So holding on to that spiritual personification of the church, holding on to who that church is, while also walking among the lampstands. So if each lampstand represents a church, what Jesus is saying here, he's walking through them. He is walking through them. So uh, one uh, commentator said this, that our Lord walks about among his people, his church. He is no absentee landlord or disinterested deity. He is there, up close and personal, intimately present. Christ is our sustainer and protector. He is our vigilant watchman. He sees what we do, hears what we say, and knows how we think and what is in our heart. When Jesus says that he is out and about and walking among his lampstands, that he's walking about his churches, he knows us. He knows what we are thinking. He knows what is in our heart. That can be pretty scary and it can be pretty encouraging at the same time to know that Jesus is about our midst. Jesus is among us, dissecting our hearts and our minds in this very moment. Jesus is intimately with us. And we all like our personal space. We like, we, you know, so to you know, think that we're in a crowd and just people being near us outside, you know, that bothers us. Like, I don't like people being so close to me. I don't like to be in a crowd. But imagine Jesus being so in your midst that he knows your very thoughts. He knows your very heart. He knows what's in it. So right out of the gate to this first church, Jesus is speaking to a deep level of intimacy with His people. I love how um, God's word, you know, with the message proclaimed and you know, the songs that sung just seem to line up. you know as we are singing today about God's love, we come to recognize how intimate that love is, how deep that love is. So right out of the gate. Jesus is speaking to this first church, the church of Ephesus. I am among you. I am in your midst. I know your thoughts. I know your hearts. I know everything about you. And I'm holding on to you. Jesus is holding on to you. Even though he knows all our failings, our fears, our doubts, whatever it is that we have, even though he knows all that, he says, I'm holding on to you. This church, this presence, I'm holding on to you. And then moving on in verses 2 and 3, it says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So moving on, Jesus begins to commend their dedication to right doctrine and their hatred of evil. Also want to read verse six. Says um, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the nicolaitans which I also hate. So Jesus, you know, says that he commends their right belief. He commends their actions. He commends what they do. He commends that they uh put down false teachers. You know, that's one thing that the apostles wrote to the churches about. Be wary of false teachers, be wary of false teaching, be wary of false apostles. Be wary of false leaders. Church, test the leaders. Make sure that what they say lines up with the scriptures. So we see that throughout the whole New Testament. We see that Ephesus did that. If someone came in with false teaching, they kicked them out. They didn't put up with false belief. They didn't put up with wrong teaching. They didn't put up with wrong doctrine. And not only that, they hated the evil that was going on. They hated the evil that took place. So I want to give you some information about Ephesus to help provide some context about what they went through. So, Ephesus was known as the supreme metropolis in Asia. So, by the way, all these seven churches are located in Asia, uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. All of these churches are located in modern-day Turkey, and they follow um, a common postal route. So, he starts, you know, and kind of goes counterclockwise around um, and to each of these different churches. And um, so, Ephesus, you know, being in Asia Minor, was known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. It's been called the Vanity Fair of the ancient world. So we're thinking of something like New York or L.A. or something like that, just a huge cultural center um, that was politically and culturally and religiously important. Um, It was a major epicenter of the Roman world. It's home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, That is the uh, temple to the goddess Diana. And so um, this uh, city, Ephesus, was vitally important. It was a crucial city, and it was desperately wicked. It was so wicked that even one of their philosophers had this to say about them. He said uh, that its people were fit only to be drowned, and that the reason he could never laugh or smile was because he lived a much such that he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. So that's what the church, or that's what the city of Ephesus was about. They were wicked. They were vile. Okay? And the goddess Diana, she's the goddess of fertility. And so there were thousands of temple prostitutes, all kinds of debauchery, evil, wickedness. That's what that city was known for. So again, think of like, you know, the New York or the L.A., you know, Big major cultural epicenters for America. That's kind of like what they were in, and so um, it was so bad that even their own philosoph- one of their own philosophers, condemned how wicked they were. And so um, it's even believed that Timothy was stoned to death. So you know Timothy, you know, you know Paul's um, you know mentee, uh, Timothy. Uh, it's even believed that he was stoned to death in Ephesus because he was trying to stop a procession honoring the goddess Diana. So these people, uh, the Christians there, were persecuted greatly because they stood for the truth in the midst of a wicked, wicked city. Chuck Swindoll says, uh, The Ephesian Christians faced special challenges because they refused to bow the knee to the goddess Diana or images of the emperor they found themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted, and abused. Not unlike Jewish, Jewish merchants in Berlin in the 1930s, Christians in Ephesus would have been the objects of physical violence, social ostracism, and economic repression. Yet they endured. They bore up under the load. So Jesus is commending them. Jesus is commending them for not giving up, for not giving in, but for honoring and living rightly, and believing rightly for His name's sake. So now you know, modern day. You know, I'm thinking of the baker in Colorado, where you know the uh, culture has shifted. You know, from Christian norms and marriage and family to where we have this baker who is you know was sued because he wouldn't make a cake in celebration of a gay wedding. The Supreme Court this summer said no, his you know religious rights were infringed upon. And now that same commission in Colorado is, again, suing him, trying to get him to shut down because he wouldn't make a cake in celebration of transgender woman or man, whichever. I don't know how that works. But I don't don't know. I don't know how you're supposed to call which one's which when you read the news. But he wouldn't make a cake celebrating that. And so they're back at him again, facing fines. And this lawyer has been calling, wanting him to make cakes in honor of Satan, make cakes with all kinds of graphic stuff that we can't talk about here right now. And so, and, and that's where this culture that we're in is heading. And so I, I think his name's Jack Phillips, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be experiencing that kind of uh, persecution. And he's standing firm. For what the Bible teaches, for what the scripture says related to God and his plan for the marriage and the family. And yet he is being persecuted. His very livelihood is being persecuted. He's lost, you know, millions of dollars. He had to lay off staff, he's lost tons of business. So he's standing up, you know, for his for Christ's name's sake in regards to marriage and family. And uh, that's, you know, something to akin to what the Ephesians went through, social ostracism. You know, for us, we're not going to be socially ostracized for standing up for what the Bible says about marriage and family, not in this community, but in other places in the world and in America. Absolutely. You sure will be. And so Jesus says, you know, so when Jesus says that he knows their toil, their patient endurance, when he says that he knows they endured patiently, and bore up for his name's sake, that, those words mean something. It really meant something to the Ephesians because they were truly suffering. They were truly being persecuted. But they would not give in to the evil all around them. They would not give in to the false beliefs all around them for Christ's name's sake. What a Savior. They would not give up for Christ's name's sake. They loved him or they had the outward appearance of loving him deeply. So even in verse 6, he says, um, after his uh, charge against him in verses 4 and 5, in verse 6, he says, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. And so we see the mention here, and we see the mention in the letter to Pergamon, and it's not 100% clear about what this sect believe, but um, other writings based on verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, Based on other writings from the church fathers, they may have been trying to get the people of the church to you know, do sexually immoral things and sacrifice food to idols. So some of the church fathers wrote this in the Nicolaitans. Irenaeus says, uh, the Nicolaitans lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. They are represented as teaching that it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Clement of Alexandria said, that they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, as if insulting the body led a life of self-indulgence. And Tertullian said that they aimed at destroying the happiness of sanctity by their lust and luxury. So whatever the Nicolaitans were, they were certainly a group who were trying to lead the churches astray, and they were somewhat successful in Pergamon, but not in Ephesus, but lead them astray into all kinds of sexual impurity and lustfulness and luxury and those kinds of things. And so Jesus commends them for not giving in to that. But then we have his rebuke. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus brings a charge against them along with a call to repentance. It says, verse 4 and 5, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What a charge from Jesus. What is he getting at? He's commending them. They believe the right thing. They hated evil. They did the right thing. But what Jesus is getting at is that they're at risk of becoming a pharisaical church of being good on the outside, but not the inside. See, they know what they were supposed to do. And, you know, this was a hard sermon to prepare. It was. It was a hard sermon for me. Because I could see myself in this so many times. Because I'm not doing the big sins. I'm not out committing adultery and stealing and, you know, those kinds of things and murdering. But at the same time, while I'm not doing those things, and while certainly I believe with orthodox historic Christian teaching, you know, it's sometimes your heart just is so far from God that you don't truly love him and let his love impact your life. See, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, it's great. It is so great that you are, you know, doing these things and hating evil and doing good. But you are far from me. You no longer love me. And it's not that they lost a loved one. It's that they chose to no longer love Jesus. You have abandoned the love you had at first. I'll never want Jesus to ever tell me that I have abandoned my love for him. Some scholars, you know, go back and forth as to. What this love at first, and what these uh, works are that he's talking about—that you did at first—the meaning is not exactly clear. The two major uh, possible meanings is that either they their love for Jesus was lost, or their love for one another, to truly sacrificially serving and loving one another, was lost. And we get caught up in this. We can put on a good show in front of people, but boy, when that car door shuts, did you see what? I can't believe they said that. That was so annoying. I know. Oh, I was been a slap a fool. I can't believe. And then, you know, it's just, you know, how tempting it is to go home and just start badmouthing one another. Or badmouthing someone. You know, and so they either lost their love for Christ or they lost their love for one another. Either way, you can't love one well if you don't love the other well. You can't love Jesus and despise his church. You can't love Jesus and loathe your fellow church members. Nor can you rightly love your fellow church members and not love Jesus well. Because if you love your fellow church members, but you don't love Jesus well, then you're not going to call them out on sin. You're not going to push them and say the the hard, truthful things that they need to hear for their own good. And so whether it's their love for Jesus, they lost their love for good their love for one another that they lost, whichever love it is, both of them relate and play off one another. You can't do either one well if you're not doing both. And so both are related, and you can't do one well without doing both well. So remember, Jesus says that they bore up against persecution and evil for his name's sake. But we must also remember that God looks at the heart And again, Jesus is intimately involved with his people. Jesus is intimately involved with us. We can put on a show for our spouse. We can put on a show for our children. We can put on a show for one another. But you can't put no show on for Jesus. He knows your heart. He looks at you with eyes as a flame a fire. He pierces through whatever thing you try and put up. Whatever facade, whatever wall, whatever anything, he can pierce through that and see how wicked and desperate your heart is. Or he can pierce through it and see that you genuinely love him. They may have been doing the right things externally, but they were at risk of being that pharisaical church. One commentator said, Jesus reminds them that labor is no substitute for love, Purity is no substitute for passion, and deeds are no substitute for devotion. Why is love so, for Christ so important? Why is love for Christ so important? Well, one, it fuels everything that we do. Everything that we believe and do is fueled by and directed by our love for him his love for us everything that we do how we serve our co-workers how we serve our family how we give into temptation or resist temptation all that we do is fueled by our love for him secondly because christ gave his life for us that's why it matters that we love him he gave his life for us his blood for his church and yet it seems like he's stuck in a loveless marriage. Has any of us ever been in that before? Been in a situation where the love just seems one-sided? Been in a relationship that it just seems one-sided? I, I use marriage because that's the picture that the Bible uses of Christ in the church. Where, yeah, they may not be going sleeping around with people, but they are cold as a stone to you. Won't show you any affection, devotion, love, intimacy, or anything like that. Jesus is our groom. We are his bride. And to have someone to be stuck in a relationship where they have no love, fire, flame, passion for you, words can't describe that feeling. And yet that's what they were in when they lost their love, when they gave up their love for Jesus. Yeah, they weren't going out, you know, believing heresy. Yeah, they weren't going around worshiping Diana. But their hearts were cold to Jesus. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Jesus says to Repent. Jesus says to repent of that. So church, where are you? Where are you individually in your love of Jesus? Because what we do corporately together as a church is wholly depend on what you do independently with Jesus. If you don't have a passion and a desire for Jesus here, it's because you're not working on it at home when you're away from here. The highest praise, that church on the left heading into Lewisburg, I don't know anything about them, but their signs are on point sometimes. They are just so on point. And the one out that's out there now that says you can't get spiritually strong if you only exercise on Sunday. If you coming here is the extent in which you nurture your relationship with Jesus, that's never going to be enough. If we want to be and continue to be a lighthouse for this community, then our individual lives has to have a flame, a passion, a fire for Jesus. So if you are far from him, if you have given up your love for Jesus, turned your back, gotten cold towards him, then repent and cling to the hope of the gospel so the question is, how do you do this? How do we repent of our lack of love for Jesus? One, tell him you're sorry and ask for his forgiveness. As profound as that may be, that's really as much as it is. Tell him you're sorry. Cry out to him. James 4, eight says that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So if your love for the Lord has grown cold, if you don't have a passion for him, if you don't have a desire to be with God, to love Jesus, then what you need to do is to ask for forgiveness and know that God will draw near to you as you draw near to him. Secondly, and this isn't in some kind of step ordered, but, uh, so, but secondly, make a decision to read his word regularly and read it, read it when was the last time you read Zephaniah chapter 3 and was reminded that God sings and rejoices over you that he has truly great plans for you and that he delights that you make him happy get in his word get deep into his word we have far too many Bibles and far too many Bible plans for us not to be reading the word regularly if you need help picking out a Bible, a plan, or whatever, please let me or Gary know. i would be glad to give you some direction there. Thirdly, make a list of things that you put before investing in your time with God. Make a list of things that you put before investing in your time with God. One thing that I have to work on, I started running you know, last October, and so now I'm up to an hour. I try and do that three or four times a week, or at least three times a week. And so one thing that I have to battle now is when I get up and it's 90 degrees outside, you know, am I going to go run early before work? Or am I going to still make that time for Jesus and sacrifice my running? Like, that's just a real example in my life that I've worked through this summer. It's like, of course, I want to sit down and read the word. But I finally got to an hour where I could run nonstop. I've never done that in my life. I don't want to give that up. Well, do I love that little girl more than the one who gave his blood for me? So make a list of the things that you know you choose to put before Jesus. Make a list of things that you know that you put before Jesus and make a determination to cut one of those things out of your life. Just cut it out of your life altogether. Just to give you an example from me and Robin's life. You know, we have the internet. We bought this device. It's called Circle Go by Disney. And it cuts the internet off at our house at 9.15 every night. Why? So we're not up to 11 p.m. But, you know, uh, you know, brain farting around on Facebook or whatever. Just doing things that um, take up time that, so that when our alarm clock goes off at 4.45 in the morning, I'm not hitting snooze to 5.30 and then missing my time for a quiet time, etc. So do things... To intentionally protect your time in the Word, ask someone to help you put at least one of those things on that list into practice this week. If you don't know who to ask for help, please ask me, please ask Gary, come find me after service, text me this afternoon, whatever it is. I will be glad to help you put whatever it is into practice so that you can love Jesus more. Fourthly, soul care. Soul care. So, yes, read the scriptures, but read good books that stir your affections for Christ. Not just read good books, you know, watch good movies that stir your affections for the Lord. So, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. Y'all know the, Chron- the Chronicles of Narnia author. He wrote many books other than that, but uh, you'll be surprised that as you read those books that are based on a Christian worldview, how many of his stories mimic the christian life and so they do so to such a degree that at one point in time a mother was concerned um, and she wrote c.s lewis on behalf of her son his name's lawrence that after having read the chronicles of narnia they were concerned that he loved aslan more than jesus and in his response lewis offered this relief lawrence can't really love aslan more than jesus Even if he feels that's what he is doing, for the things he loves Aslan for doing or saying are simply the things Jesus really did and said. So that when Lawrence thinks he is loving Aslan, he is really loving Jesus and perhaps loving him more than he ever did before. So yes, absolutely read the scriptures regularly, but find other good books. I love these short little fiction stories. They so stir my affections for Jesus and my love for God because I just see the picture of the Christian life and all that God does in there. Also, related to that, stop being busy. Stop being busy. Um, this is an excerpt from the screw tape letters, also written by C.S. Lewis, and it's a, it's a story about. Um, Uh, a demon and the demon's nephew and their work against God and the Christians so this is a story um, this is a letter written by the demon to his nephew uh, about a, a new Christian who is starting to backslide he says as this condition becomes more fully established that him being backslidden you will be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptations as the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut off More and more from all real happiness. And his habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forgo. For that is what habit fortunately does to a pleasure. You or anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him away from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about and subjects that bore him. Anyone get stuck arguing on Facebook about pointless stuff? You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return so that at at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong and nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind, over it knows not what, and knows not why, in the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, and drumming of fingers, and kicking of heels, and whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of versaries. They have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which once chance association has a start at them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, again, the enemy being God. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts the enemy wants to draw us away from the light, and it's all in the little things that we do. Take care of your soul. I've shared several resources with you in the past. This one's The Valley of Vision. I'm not sure if I've shared this before, but uh, again, it's just a very good devotional book that uh, just, again, helps stir my affection for the Lord. And then lastly, remember that we're in a real war. So we're all familiar with You know, Paul's writings about you know finding its principalities and spiritual darkness and and that language. We're very familiar with that. Um, but one passage that does it for me in terms of understanding that we're in an actual war is Daniel ten. Daniel chapter ten. So when you go and you read Daniel ten, Daniel asks for God's guidance. Daniel asks for God's help. And God's messenger is took 21 days to get to Daniel because he was fighting against spiritual demonic forces. The angelic messenger that God sent to Daniel was held up by spiritual demonic forces. Don't think that doesn't happen today. Daniel was waiting on God 21 days for an answer for guidance. And the messenger that God sent to Daniel was actually held up by a demon. Like, that's real-life scenario situation. That actually happened to Daniel. Don't think that won't happen to us either. Yes, we are in a war. We are in a spiritual battle against the principalities, against things unseen. And the passage that really brings that to life, that in the very moments, is Daniel 10. When Daniel, begging for God's guidance, was impacted in that way. God's messenger detained. So, restoring our love for Jesus, working on our relationship with him, stirring our affections for him is much harder than simply denouncing heresy or doing any flagrant sins. But God has a promise for us, for those who overcome, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, to know that if we resist the devil, if we turn our, if we turn back to our first love, there will be for us a treasure, a promise, the tree of life forbidden for us to partake of since the garden of Eden, but for those who conquer, we will get to Feast on that in the paradise that is heaven. So the one who overcomes, that's the promise for Jesus. Restore your love for me. Come back to me and you will get to feast on the tree of life. Church, Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves his church. He is intimately involved in every being and every aspect of our lives. He is intimately involved in the depths of our heart, our mind, our thoughts, everything. Jesus loves you. And the reason he gives this challenge is because he knows that there is something far greater than being far greater than hating the bad and not doing the big sins. Jesus knows there's something far greater than not doing the bad things. He knows that there are pleasures forevermore and a peace that the world cannot give. He wants you to experience that and to know that deeply. He is jealous for your good. Jesus is jealous for your good. He knows that what he has to give is far greater than anything the world has. And the enemy is going to do everything he can to drag us away from the good promises of God. If you are the church at Ephesus, if the church of Ephesus describes you today, then repent, cry out to God, tell him you love him, ask him to help you love him more and to love you better. For he loves you more than you can ever imagine. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, how vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, roaring like a mighty ocean. Is His love for each and every one of you. Return to your first love. When we sing, when we sing our song of response, don't go through the motions. Stop being a Pharisee now. And beg God to help you to love Him and to restore your love for Him. Let's pray. God,